Hello and welcome to episode 77 of Sensational She Geek, live from Yancey Street. This is the last episode of the month of August. With September being right around the corner, in the news segment today I do have some some things that we can look forward to in the month of September. Including what to expect on Disney Plus Day, we have the D23 convention coming up, Dragon Con in Atlanta is a pretty big convention as well, then there is Hasbro PulseCon at the end of the month, as well as the premiere of Andor and Batman Day on the third Saturday of September, which this year would be the 17th. I also have some information on comics to look forward to in the month of September, So be sure to check that out when we get through the news segment. After the news, among other things, we have comic book picks for the week in which I'm going to be talking a bit about Olympus Rebirth, Minor Threats number one, which was absolutely fantastic, and then of course Judgment Day, Grimm, Public Domain, and the return of Damage Control. For the comic book polls this week, these are the things that are coming out on the week of the 31st. Over at DC, they're doing a number of annuals this week, uh, and there isn't too much by way of indie comics and what I'm reading, but as always, check out your local comic shop. They will have all kinds of recommendations of a plethora of stuff that I never talk about just because there is so much in comics, so be sure to find something that you enjoy because I promise you there is something for you out there. After the polls for this week, we're going to, of course, talk She-Hulk episode 2, titled Superhero, Superhuman Law, a really fun episode, and then, of course, Harley Quinn, the animated show, episode 7, titled Another Sharkly Adventure, which was absolutely, supremely ridiculous. Real quick here before we get started, please feel free to join the Yancey Street Discord. There is a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode's description. The Discord is a safe, friendly place for socialization and discussion of whatever you want, really, comics, pop culture, or otherwise. And it's also where you can go to find links or images mentioned during the podcast all in one place. You can find me most easily on social media via Instagram. My username is at Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and hey, I've got a lot of comics. Uh, my podcast updates, if you want to find those, they'll be mostly on Twitter, where my username is at Savage she Geek because Sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, where I have been working on fixing up the site quite a bit so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast, so make sure you go and check that out, including my beginner's guide to both comics and manga, covering hopefully any information that you might need to take your first steps into the world of comics or manga, including recommendations on comics, graphic novels, manga, series, etc. Uh, I also have my reading orders with commentary on appearances of various leading ladies, many of which I use to turn into the monthly Yancey Street specials, also linked all over my site, uh, and they focus on a so far female character from the comics to study thoroughly and then expand upon in a podcast episode of their own. I try to make them pretty relevant. For example, I I'm about 95% done with a Jennifer Walters She-Hulk episode, which is going to be coming out uh, for her show this August. Additionally, anything pre-2021 content-wise can be found written in the website blog for your reference, which was all before I started the podcast. Plus my podcast notes, which are basically all the content of each episode in written format, are made available on my blog as well for reading the podcast instead of listening and for those who are hearing impaired 
shared if they'd like to keep up with the podcast events as well. And you can finally find links to anywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most, if not all, podcast hosting apps, and also includes YouTube. On YouTube, I also post the podcast episodes in a single playlist format, if that is easier way for you to listen. And I also occasionally post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports in the latest videos, as I have pretty much given up on Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, uh, but I do have a big backlog of Legends videos, including a tour of our entire collection. It's a very long video tour. And soon, the HasLab Galactus, assuming that he is on his way, to go alongside last year's HasLab Sentinel video. I do have a podcast Patreon. You can find it under Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast, as well as a Kofi, which is like a buy a creator a coffee situation. And Cash App, Venmo, PayPal are all linked on my link tree for donation towards the podcast, which should appear linked among a various other fun things at the bottom of each episode's description. Uh, I do also have a Redbubble shop called She Geek Shop, but I have been having some issues with their site and whatnot. Um, so I'm working on setting up my own storefront on my site, which hopefully will be coming by the new year and will be faster with more support from listeners. We have some really fun stuff coming up in the news this week, starting off with we're going to talk Monica Rambeau and her new comic series, Umbrella Academy Season 4, uh, two different King Kong projects, if you can believe that, some rumors about the Fantastic Four potential directors or director, uh, some more discussion of the cancelled Batgirl movie and other DC film delays, and just some general uh, culmination of the whole BS going on over there at Warner Discovery. Uh, a little bit on House of the Dragon episode 2, which did come out yesterday on HBO. And then, like I mentioned before, uh, all of the stuff to look forward to in September, including events as well as comics. So starting up there at the top of the list, I actually want to mention first um, a show that I usually really enjoy, Star Trek Lower Decks, is back. I'm not actually sure what day of the week that it premieres on. It popped up in my watch list, and that's all I know. Uh, I could not finish the episode, unfortunately, due to uh, what, in my opinion, horrific sound mixing errors. Um, but if that is a show that you have previously enjoyed the way that I have, then possibly you will um, be able to get over those weird choices of sound mixing. But it is back Star Trek Lower Decks. I will not be going through it episodically um, because it, it really is just kind of a joke of a show. It's just there for fun. This December, Monica Rambeau, aka Spectrum, aka Pulsar, aka Photon, aka Captain Marvel, I could go on. Monica Rambeau is finally getting her technical first solo series starring herself. I say technical because actually Dwayne McDuffie uh, wrote two separate one-shots for her. I know one of them was as Captain Marvel. I think the second one was as well, actually, um, titled for Captain Marvel. But they were only ever one-shots, so there was never a solo series. He just wrote her a couple of solo issues. So yes, this is Monica Rambeau's first solo comic series, I just feel like you have to give her that credit of those other two issues because yes, they are there and they starred her, so check those out. But anyway, uh, in December is when we're going to be getting this series premiering. It is going to be written by Eve Ewing, who has been around Marvel 
um, and they're kind of queer uh, characters of color type situations uh, the past five years or so. Done a very good job with that. And then the art ha- is going to be by, uh, I apologize if I say this wrong, but Michael Santamaria. Not a clue if I said that right. Um, but they apparently are all teamed up and they have a couple of preview pages floating out there on the internet as well. Uh, as I mentioned, her last solo adventure took place three decades ago now is what um, the timeline kind of works out to be. And that was written by Dwayne McDuffie. And again, you will recognize that name if you are a regular on this podcast, because uh, he has been mentioned quite a bit recently surrounding She-Hulk as well as Damage Control comics recently. Um, and something that Ewing has to say about the series, she says, it's such an honor to be taking on the story of a legacy character like Monica Rambeau. Monica's character has a long history in the Marvel Universe, but she's way overdue for getting her own story told. I'm picking the pen up from the legend himself, Dwayne McDuffie, who put out the last Monica Rambeau soul adventure almost three decades ago. It's a privilege privilege, and I'm excited to tell the story in a way that both highlights her incredible cosmic abilities as well as her everyday relatable struggles. I hope this will be a title that has something equal to offer to veteran readers and folks who may be brand new to comics. That is fantastic as a fan of Monica and a comic reader to hear because that is wonderful to um have somebody who is striving to have a put out a comic for a character that anybody can get you not this is not just for new people and it's going to rub people who've been around her for forever the wrong way and it's not just for people who know the character really intensely you're not going to need some super in-depth history um to see that which by the way if you do want to see a somewhat brief um what do they call them real instagram reel i have one on my um obviously my Instagram page, uh, which is about Monica Rambeau. I think, I want to say it was from like February 2021, because I'm pretty sure I posted it when uh, she was appearing by, played by Taylor Paris on WandaVision. So uh, that is on my Instagram page. Maybe I'll link it in the description. I'll do that if I remember. Um, and it's it's a, you know, 30 second, one minute, whatever it is that reels can be or could be even the time that I made that. Uh, some short little video about the first appearance of Monica Rambeau, which is Amazing Spider-Man number, or, uh, Sorry, Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 16, and as I look up on the wall to check the number of the issue. Um, really, it's a very fun issue. Um, John Romita definitely had, or I should say the Romitas themselves, because I believe it was John Romita as well as John Romita Jr. Um, doing the art for this issue, and they had clearly a fantastic time uh, drawing Monica because she is stunning throughout that issue. Which has to be mentioned because her being stunning is actually part of the plot of the issue. Peter Parker, like, can't take his eyes off her and ends up following her down the street. Yada, yada, yada. Witnesses stuff happen. It's a whole thing. Really fun issue, as I said. For whatever reason, they don't have a proper solicitation up for this solo series yet. Uh, But it does say that it's on sale the 7th of December. And it says, explore the outer reaches and wildest vagaries. Vagaries? But okay, of the Marvel Universe through the eyes of one of its most powerful heroes when Monica Rambeau Photon Number 1 arrives in December. That's all it says. So, uh, assuming she maybe goes off into space, 
not so much everyday relatable struggles then, so maybe she's doing space day trips, I don't know. Uh, whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic, I'm sure that everybody's going to really enjoy it. Um, and I'm just really happy that they're actually <laughs> following through um, on what I was kind of saying back when shows like WandaVision were going, were first starting, where, oh yes, good to see Monica popping up here in the show, hopefully that means that we're going to get more of her in the comics, because it's been honestly quite lax. Um, or lacking of her in the comics. She has been appearing in Kelly, um, yeah, Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel here and there. Um, but honestly, she and Carol have never been that close, which is something that Kelly Thompson's touched on a bit on, on getting them closer, but has, you know, now we're on a whole different storyline of the comic now. Um, so hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll see some, um, female friendship type situations playing out here. That's always something that I look forward to in these kinds of comics. So, um, and also I will, because of the series, I will be discussing Monica, um, as the subject of the November Yancey street special this year. Um, so she is going to be the subject. It's going to be going through all of her appearances from the first appearance, all of the, you know, the regular stuff I do for the specials for introducing characters, the character history, her key appearances, her physical appearance, her, her outfits, her, you know, names, everything like that. All of your Monica Rambeau questions answered. Um, the last thing about this uh, Photon series that's coming in December is my assumption is that she will actually be changing her name back to Photon after it being Spectrum for the past... I don't know, 10 plus years. My cat is currently climbing up onto my neck to lay down. <laughs> um, but yeah, so her name, apparently going back to Photon, uh, with that in mind, you can probably assume that when she gets an actual superhero name in the proper MCU, it will uh, be Photon as well. Umbrella Academy has officially been renewed at Netflix for a fourth season. However, they did announce that this will be the final season of the show as well. Honestly, this is not a surprise to me and is not really much of a loss to me. Of course, the show is great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but in my opinion, it's probably gotten a bit too far ahead of the comic, um, the Umbrella Academy comics, for it to be kind of sustainable at all anymore. And a bit like the way that Game of Thrones went far and beyond the books, and now nobody's really expecting George R. R. Martin to finish the books because he's apparently quite lazy. Um, and you know, we've seen the story end, so why should he bother doing his part? I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's his actual mindset, but, um, I know that Gerard Way is still planning on putting out more Umbrella Academy comics, so theoretically, um, they, it could, you know, the comics could wrap up if he's putting out, like, a final thing. We don't really have the details on that necessarily, um, but we could be getting a new Umbrella Academy comic the same time we get this final, um, arc of the show. So we'll have to wait and see for that. Uh, the producer of the show, Steve Blackman, what a name, he uh, had a statement that he put out about this. He says, I'm excited that the incredibly loyal fans of the Umbrella Academy will be able to experience the, experience the fitting end to the Hargreaves siblings' journey as we began five years ago. But before we get to that conclusion, we've got an amazing story ahead for season four, one that will have fans on the edge of their seats until the final minute. So that uh, we, we really don't know when that's coming out, but we do know that that'll probably be, you know, next year and a half or so. Um, so keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open for that. Don't hold your breath. Um, but it will be the the last bit of live action Umbrella Academy we see, hopefully to be followed by 
a continuing um, run for the comics. As promised, we do have two separate pieces of King Kong news here. Uh, this is, I find it hilarious in my opinion. Uh, but one is going to be a King Kong live action Disney Plus origin series. Okay, you get all that. And the other uh, is the sequel to the Godzilla vs. Kong movie. Completely separate entities. So uh, starting with the Disney Plus live action origin series. <laughs> I'm um, not really sure how, why this is happening, I guess, would be the better question is why. Uh, I guess because they can is probably the answer to that. Uh, but it is set outside of the MonsterVerse, notably. Uh, MonsterVerse being, I, I know in the past I've said Sony, but I recently realized I was wrong. It's a legendary MonsterVerse. Um, it's like it's Warner and Legendary, actually. I'm not sure, but I know Legendary at least. Um, point being, I was wrong about it being Sony. Thank goodness, probably. But anyway, um, so now Disney has a little bit on here, not involved in the rest of the franchise movies. Um, so that will be interesting. Also interesting is the series is going to be produced by, of all people, James Wan, who is the director of Aquaman. Okay, it's very out there in my opinion, but even more out there, or possibly equally as out there, uh, it's going to be written by the Paper Girls showrunner, Stephanie Folsom, which, you know, both of these things, James Wan is a great director, um, or I imagine producer alongside that, and Stephanie Folsom obviously did a great sh job writing the Paper Girls show. But it's just so, I just find that so random. What a, what a random selection of creators um, <laughs> to be involved in uh, this Disney Disney King Kong show. Again, James Wan, known for Warner, his Aquaman stuff, his horror stuff. I'm not sure what that came out from. And I guess Amazon is Paper Girls. So <laughs> Disney's... Disney's taking the heat from all different pe all different perspective audiences. <laughs> but what we do know about the series so far, uh, Deadline, this was broken, news broken on Deadline, they say that it will be a, quote, serialized action-slash-adventure drama that brings King Kong into the modern age. It will explore the mythology and origin of Kong, as well as that of Skull Island and the various supernatural elements of his home. Um, and it says that also the source material that they're getting all of this from, and this is probably a great news bit as well, um, is actually a collaboration between the Marion C. Cooper estate and artist Joe DeVito. Um, to explain that a little bit more, the Marion C. Well, I should say Marion C. Cooper was the original 1933 creator of King Kong, whereas Joe DeVito uh, is apparently producing or has a hand in producing new novelizations. Um, so the two of them together, uh, hopefully we'll make, we'll be able to put out some kind of quality, uh, Kong origin story, which even just saying that feels fairly ridiculous. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, I'm not going to expect it to be high quality cinema or television as my cat trips in the background. But I do completely expect it to be enjoyable, especially if it's made by people who can actually write Kong, and it sounds like it is, um, and hopefully not god-awful, um, which I just, that that's my expectation. I just want to have some fun with this and not have it be completely terrible. Um, I, I think as far as if they have the writing and the source material taken care of, which it seems that they do, um, 
I think what we have to worry about then would be like the CGI because again this is live action and that is interesting. We'll have to wait and see how that kind of goes. But um, aside from this, which is not in the MonsterVerse, the legendary MonsterVerse, things that are coming up in the somewhat recent or somewhat, yeah, close future, distant future, the opposite of distant future, words. Um, in the MonsterVerse, we have the Godzilla, the live action Godzilla series, which is going to be happening on Apple TV Plus, which I don't... Why is it Apple TV versus Apple TV Plus? Is there a difference? Somebody tell me that. Um, and then Netflix is also reportedly developing an animated series which is meant to be set on Skull Island, um, and that will also be somehow connected officially to the MonsterVerse. So they're really going out there with not only where they're getting these properties developed at, uh, we have Apple TV Plus, we have Netflix, we have the movies being done, I'm sure, in somewhat legitimate studios. <laughs> and now one of these projects is actually animated for the official MonsterVerse. So I'm 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 actually kind of excited to see um what Legendary and Warner and all of that Netflix, Apple TV, all of these people um are going to be bringing us for the Godzilla and Kong properties. Of course, this is Disney Plus one not related to that. Uh but as far as things related to the actual MonsterVerse go, the sequel to Godzilla versus Kong, as far as I know, it doesn't have a Title. They've been calling it Godzilla vs. Kong 2, which, based on the description, is not an accurate name at all, um, because what it says is the Titans will team up to fight a, quote, colossal undiscovered threat hidden within our world. Um, whatever that means. Uh, but we do have a release date. It's March 15th, 2024. They are already in some kind of development for the movie because the, uh, I believe the director has been posting stuff on social media about the production. So that's great. Um, I obviously really, really enjoyed the first Godzilla vs. Kong movie. I, I enjoyed King of the Monsters, all of that. Um, the human plots obviously are never any good, but are we any of us there for the human side of the plot? No, we are there for big friggin' monster battles. And so if you just give us some really fun, entertaining monster stuff, I'm I'm there. That is all I need for this Godzilla and Kong stuff. And that does extend into the Disney show, whatever that may end up being. I hope they don't try and go too much of a weird emotional way. <laughs> I guess that's one way they could ruin it too, huh? Uh, for me, that would ruin it, I think. I, I like the big, fun, crazy, exciting monster battles and things. I'm, I'm not in this to see Kong's very depressing origin story, if that's the way that they're going to go with this, which who knows. So the Godzilla vs. Kong sequel, it would be joining the lineup of uh, legendary monsterverse movies that consist so far of Kong Skull Island, which I rewatched recently. It was a really good movie, still. It holds up. Uh, Godzilla, which I think was the 2014 Godzilla. And then you have uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, which was Godzilla versus all the other monsters from the Godzilla lore, as well as most recently, of course, Godzilla versus Kong, um, which is, as you would have guessed, Godzilla versus Kong with a spicy twist of Mecha Godzilla, which I absolutely loved. It was so cool. <laughs> Again, not here for the human plots. We're here for cool monster shit. But anyway, moving on. Uh, this was a bit of a brief leak or rumor, I should say, uh, that happened earlier this past week. Um, we had been discussing, or rather uh, in the Discord, we had been discussing the potentiality of 
how much Fantastic Four Marvel, uh, you know, MCU information we may or could be getting in any way at D23, which is coming up in the first week and a half or so of September. Um, and a lot of people are saying, oh yeah, we're going to get, we're going to get the plot. We're going to get the casting announcement, all this stuff, the full cast and crew coming out on stage. That's a bit ridiculous. Um, and I think we all know that it's a bit ridiculous because we were still searching for a director of uh, Fantastic Four post-Comic-Con, and you don't have a plan for the movie until you have a director. Um, so now we may, with this news, we may be getting an official director announcement at D23 because it has been rumored that Matt Shackman, who, or Shockman, I have no idea, uh, but Matt, who directed the MCU's... Um, the WandaVision series, um, he directed WandaVision. He is apparently in talks to direct whatever their upcoming Fantastic Four feature will be. Um, that sounds like honestly great news to me. Uh, no matter your opinion on WandaVision, I know mostly is very positive for public um, opinions on that, but I know some people found it to be boring or drawn out or something like that. No matter what your opinion on WandaVision is, you have to admit that that show set out to do something and it nailed it on the head. And you have to credit that, of course, um, not necessarily primarily, but in large part to the director who was this Matt guy. Um, so if he is going to be doing the Fantastic Four, I think that's great. Um, we saw in WandaVision that he, if you watched any of the behind the scenes stuff, which, uh, we did, he, he did a very good job in kind of like film ingenuity and getting a team together who was really good at making the experience of the, 1950s and so on TV sets feel authentic. The costumes, the coloring, everything like that feel very authentic. So um, someone like that who has that kind of experience and uh, drive for authenticity and a feeling of realness behind the camera, um, I can only see that being extremely positive with this new Fantastic Four I'm assuming movie that Marvel is looking to put out in the next couple of years. Um, because we've seen, let's see the first, the first, what was it? Was it a duo or a trilogy? I think it was only two movies, right? With the ones with Chris Evans and Jessica Alba. Um, that one was of course quite goofy, um, as most comic book movies of that kind of era were. And then we got fan four stick as I call it, which was shockingly bad, um, part in part due to the fact that you had a stellar cast on paper and then you put them in a room together and they have no chemistry, um, <laughs> and can't seem to put together the garbage scripts to make anything decent, which is not necessarily their fault. But um, that was obviously a travesty of a movie, and they tried to go way too hard with it. Um, so having having it gone both very light and very, I guess you would say, dark with fan uh, which, yes, is what I am going to continue calling that, bringing in somebody like uh, this Matt character, Matt Shockman or Shakeman, Shackman, um, who has done that the kind of things with WandaVision that we saw him do, especially, as I said, if you've seen the behind the scenes, I think that is a good direction uh, for this new Fantastic Four, especially since we've already seen um, or we've already heard from Kevin Feige that they're not really planning on doing the whole origin thing um, 
what I can see this creator, this director doing would be maybe um, a you see the origin play out as the events of the movie are playing out. We see the flashback to the origin as things kind of go, the story unfolds, um, and I'm kind of thinking of it like in a Tom King comic writing way where uh, you have the mystery of the origin and the mystery of what is actually happening in the current timeline of the movie. And both mysteries are tied together and both mysteries unfold each other as uh, various steps are taken to solving them. I hope that makes sense. But that's the kind of um, that that's really what I'm seeing. I know all it is is a rumor that he might be in talks, um, but. Honestly, I, I think that that's a fantastic choice. He's already in the world of Marvel. He knows how they do things, and he's proven that he is a uh, very capable director to um, put out accurately what he has been assigned to do. Meanwhile, on the other side of things, over at the DC Warner camp, which has been a cluster um, we have some things that have been happening. <laughs> Obviously, Batgirl was canceled, but we got, um, from multiple sources this week, we learned that there are actually screenings of the movie being done on the, uh, I believe it is on the Warner campus, um, for people who worked on the movie, both cast and crew, as well as representatives and executives. Um, the, the word, the word is that they are calling them funeral screenings because why make things happy? Um, this is, in my opinion, a clear admission that not only the movie is out there, but that it is important to people and it wants to be seen by people. So, uh, anybody having tried to say that they canceled this movie due to it not being relevant or interesting or anything like that is, is obviously a total lie. It was really just um, that in their minds, Batgirl was like the lowest common denominator of their business uh, for themselves, and so they just decided to kill it. And then the backlash uh, is probably what the only thing that is getting these secret screenings to happen, just probably so that the people who are involved in them don't burn down their houses for all the hard work that is being trashed. <laughs> There are some who are saying that it could become the next uh, Zack Snyder Justice League, which would mean an abandoned movie that later comes to see the light of day on HBO Max. Uh, there were some articles, though, that pointed out the flaws of this um, possibility, and that is basically that if the studio was to release Batgirl at this point, or at any point now, um, it would likely run afoul of the rules that allowed Warner Discovery to claim the tax write-off for it, um, as well as the fact that the filmmakers uh, Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah, they do not have personally any access to the footage. Um, we know that Zack Snyder left the Warner Studios with a laptop containing four-hour cut of his movie. Uh, that is clearly not the same situation that these filmmakers were allowed to leave in. Yes, I am bitter and insinuating racism. Um, but from Hollywood Reporter, they have a little quote here about the goings-on of things here, right? So several sources suggested that Warner's that Warner might take the drastic move of actually destroying its Batgirl footage as a way of dem to demonstrate to the IRS that there will never be any revenue from the project, and thus it should be entitled to the full write-down immediately, the write-off they get from the movie being wrapped. 
scrapped. Other sources dispute that notion, noting that there are other projects that have still that still have lo- footage locked away that will never see the light of day, such as HBO's first Game of Thrones spin-off pilot, Blood Moon, an hour of television that not even author George R.R. R. Martin has seen. There is the possibility that Warner could, down the road, decide Batgirl is worth releasing and pay back the government its tax liability. So that's basically Hollywood Reporter saying that that last line there is pretty much the only way that we will ever see Batgirl publicly um, which is never going to happen, let's be honest. Warner is never going to pay the government back any kind of tax, anything. So, um, unfortunately, it does seem pretty much factual that we are never going to see this movie. Movies that we will be seeing, just delayed. Um, we had two DC film delays this week announced. It was Shazam 2 and Aquaman 2. We, I thought that actually Black Adam was in that mix, but I can't seem to find anything about it being delayed recently, so I'm going to pass on that one and say it was just these two. For Aquaman 2, we've already talked about director James Wan um, revolving around some of the Marvel stuff here. Well, Disney stuff, I guess. Um... His movie, Aquaman 2, has been pushed back from March 17th, 2023, all the way to December 25th, 2023, which is something like seven months. No, nine months. I can do math. (laughs) Um, And the reason for this, apparently, is that the movie needs more time in post-production, if that's a legitimate reason, then I think that's good. I'd rather you put in the more time post-production than give us something that doesn't look good. As for Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods, uh, the original date was December 21st, 2022. It has now snatched up uh, Aquaman 2's original release date of March 17th. So it's it's, it's moved about three months back. Um, which it claims is due to the fact that Avatar 2 is apparently coming out at the same time of the original date, December 21st, um, and Avatar will be taking up all of the IMAX screen availability, and the Shazam director believes that his movie should be seen on IMAX screen, so they're pushing it to a more openly available theater date, I guess. That honestly sounds like bullshit to me, but we haven't been given another reason to think otherwise. Um, but kind of attached to this and all of the Batgirl stuff, and how Warner is scrambling around with this mess. There's also a rumor going around that reportedly Warner Brothers Discovery can only afford to put out three more movies for the remainder of 2022. You might be thinking, how could it possibly cost them that much to put out movies? Well, marketing, all the payment that has to be made to theaters for them to, you know, I'm sure there's stuff they pay theaters. Um... And then there's, I mean, just marketing in itself is supposed to make up a massive amount of, um, I think it's something like almost the same amount as the movie is made. You're supposed to be spending in marketing for your movie, something like that. It's ridiculous. Um, or at least between marketing and between theater payouts and things, it's supposed to be, you're supposed to double the amount of movie that you money that you've spent making this movie. So I I do kind of believe that if they really are scrambling for cash that badly, <laughs> that they're canceling movies for the tax payoffs or write-offs, uh, almost completely made movies for the tax write-offs. Then I I definitely think this is something that has some legitimacy behind it. Uh, the final thing for this weird Warner Brothers stuff that's going on, Warner Brothers Discovery stuff. Um, the saga of Ezra Miller. 
I think comes to an end is what this would be. Um, they have been, you know, going all around the world, it seems, not just the country, but the world, causing chaos. I don't know how. Probably private jets, I would imagine. Um, apparently kidnapped somebody. Um, apparently robbed some houses. Um, and now <laughs> they have finally been brought to a meeting with the higher-ups at the company to, quote, straighten things out, or straighten out the situation, I suppose, uh, as to keep their upcoming Flash movie, or Flashpoint movie, from being cancelled. And I guess Warner is just going to sit back and accept their apology and keep going like nothing happened. Again, the man allegedly kidnapped somebody, uh, robbed houses, and generally acted like somebody who needs mental uh, help around the world while the public watches and waits for their movie to be canceled. But Batgirl was the one that gets canceled with Michael Keaton. I don't know. It's just... <laughs> they get no pity from me. Absolutely none. And no matter, no matter what the future holds, they get no pity from me. House of the Dragon episode two was a fine enough episode. Um, it was, yeah, it was fine. They, I guess they're dealing with some issues now about some pirates who feed captives live to an army of crabs, which is pretty brutal. Slow, slow death, I might add. Um, it just, yeah, there's some, they, they, they gotta do stuff and they're trying to like, oh yeah, the king's gotta remarry and blah, blah, ends up he's gonna remarry. He's gonna marry Allison, is that her name? Um, his, like, his, his daughter, his hands, the hand of the king's daughter is who Allison is. Um, and everybody's like, oh, it's some big betrayal because he's supposed to marry a Targaryen, but he's marrying this Allison chick. And Allison is his daughter's best friend and handmaiden or something like that. I don't know. Um, but basically it's, it's, it's weird inbred stuff. But anyway, the woman um, who from the first episode would have been queen, you know, very, very early in the episode when we're getting the first bits of story, um, she apparently ended up marrying the black Targaryen who we've seen a couple of times in these episodes. And those two kids that he has are actually hor hor geez, her children. Um, I, I did some unfortunate Googling this week and learned that <laughs> Damon Targaryen will be marrying the little girl who is 12, I might add, and Rhaenyra will marry the little boy. Both of those pairings end up having children, and then at some point in time, Rhaenyra and Damon, who are uncle and niece, I might remind you, they marry each other and have kids as well. So I'll, first off, I'm going to assume that um, the, um, the little children... The 12-year-old children, the little boy and the girl who they are going to marry at some point and have kids with, they must they must have horrible deaths because Rhaenyra and Damon end up marrying each other, and I don't think divorce is a really a thing in this world. Um, I know what's really scary about this, though. What's really scary about this to me is the people romanticizing this stuff. It's like Twitter just needs to be burned. <laughs> Um, I, I thought we all knew going into this that the Targaryens are written like this to show what an honest to God's fucked up family they are. Like, I thought that was pretty obvious. Like, yeah, Uncle and he literally grooms his niece from childhood. In the books, it's from age eight, although it's that's just when we meet her. You can guarantee it was younger than that. He grooms his niece... 
and then marries her and they have children and that's their what why are you people romantic what and you get these guys on twitter who are like oh my god they are the cutest couple look at how they look at each other i'm sorry stop romanticizing incest that is just not okay um so i'm hoping that the show doesn't really drive me that crazy with the incest because it kind of does drive me a little bit <laughs> this this guy it's terrible it's bad it's 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 gross it's wrong but anyway um we'll see how the rest of the show progresses i suppose before we get into some of the highlights coming in the month of september i do have a link in the description below for all of the november marvel and dc comic book solicitations everything that will be coming out from the big two um links and all the solicits and uh variant cover artists and information behind those and those if you would like to order those comics the orders are due by september 18th uh, and the best way to order those would be to go through your local comic shop. But in any case, coming in September, um, I'll talk a little bit about some comics that are becoming from various publishers to look forward to. But my September special is going to be about Jessica Cruz from DC Comics. She is the Green Lantern. Um, really, really great character. I was super into her when she first kind of came into being a Green Lantern. Uh, when Rebirth first kicked off, really, really loved her Green Lantern series alongside Simon Baz. Um, and I will be talking about her in September because I just decided to. Um, and as for events through September, September 8th has Disney Plus Day, uh, which is going to bring both Pinocchio, the live action movie, and Thor Love and Thunder to the Disney Plus streaming site. Uh, immediately following that on this September 9th through 11th is the D23 convention where Disney will be showing all of their Disney properties and what they are planning to do with them for the next year plus. Um, and that is, of course, going to include, as we've already kind of mentioned, some either major to minor, minor to major, we're, we'll have to wait and see, um, MCU announcements as well. Dragon Con is happening in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, September 1st through 5th. That's a pretty big con itself. And then Hasbro Pulse Con is happening September 30th through October 2nd. Hasbro is a big collectibles manufacturer. They do uh, the Marvel Legends line. They do the Star Wars Black series. They do, I want to say, like a bunch of other lines like G.I. Joe's and... I don't know, Transformers or something. Um, but Hasbro is a huge, huge, like, geek collectibles manufacturer, and so their convention always has lots of really fun announcements for that side of being a collector. Um, and then we have September 21st brings us the three-episode premiere of Andor on Disney+. And finally, September 17th is Batman Day, which happens annually on the third Saturday in September. As for those comics that'll be coming out this month, from Image Comics, we're going to be seeing continuations of Love Everlasting, Eight Billion Genies, Seven Sons, Public Domain, Sins of the Black Flamingo, and Twig, with kickoffs of Flawed, a six-issue six issue series, 
and an ongoing series titled Least We Can Do. Boom Studios sees the finale of Flavor Girls and Grimm with the starts of The Stuff of Nightmares and Briar, which is one that I highly recommend you looking into. At IDW, they're starting Crashing and Earth Divers, and then that leaves us with, uh, oh no, we have Dynamite. Still, Dynamite has uh, the continuation of Vampirella Year One, Immortal Red Sonia, Samurai Sonia. And then we have kickoffs for a one shot of Scarlet Sisters, a five series, a five issue Ninjet series, and a five issue Vampirella Mind Warp series. That now leaves us at the big two, uh, where we have uh, the continuation of Judgment Day, Amazing Spider Man, a new writer on Avengers. That would be Mark Russell. So Jason Aaron is out. Mark Russell is in. Good time to pick up Avengers and start reading it if you've always wanted to but haven't really had the opportunity. Uh, we also have continuation of Death to the Mutants, Judgment Day, which I actually think I already said. Uh, Captain Marvel, Damage Control, Daredevil, Fantastic Four is also getting a new creator. Is David Pepose? I hope I said that right. Uh, he is replacing Dan Slott. Thank heavens I can read Fantastic Four again. Uh, we also see the continuation of Immortal X-Men, New Mutants, She-Hulk, Strange, Thunderbolts, The Variants, uh, and then one-shots of Axe Avengers, Marvel Voices Community, and kickoffs for Midnight Suns, five-issue series, Exterminators, five-issue series, and the ongoing All Out Avengers. That leaves us with DC Comics, where we see the continuation of Action Comics, the finale of Aquaman Andromeda, and then more for Dark Crisis, DC's War of the Undead Gods, a new arc for Harley Quinn, starting with issue 22. Then we have Human Target, the Jurassic League, Multiversity Teen Justice, a fantastic Jenny Frizen Poison Ivy color cover, the finale of Nubia, Queen of the Amazons, Sword of Asriel, and some one-shots, Batman vs. Robin. Actually, it's a, it's a number one of a five-issue series. We have a one-shot, which is Dark Knights of Steel, Tales from Three Kingdoms, and Dark Crisis, Worlds Without Justice League, Wonder Woman, as well as the Harley Quinn 30th Anniversary Special, with a number of variants for Harley Quinn's 30th Anniversary appearing across DC Comics this month. And we also kick off Tim Drake Robin number one, Batman One Bad Day Two Face, which again is actually a one shot, and Titans United Blood Pack one of six. So there is a lot to look forward to in September. As I mentioned at the beginning, we have a good deal of really fun comic book picks this week. These are comics that premiered the week of August 24th. Starting off with Axe, Judgment Day number three from Marvel. Basically, um, it is discovered that the Celestial has basically a button you can press and destroy the whole thing, but destroying it will cause the whole thing to explode and take out many human cities in the process. Sinister ends up telling the X-Men all about this except for that last part, so they go to hunt down the Celestial and take it out, um, and it ends up looking like they kind of did it, um, and it does cause the annihilation of millions. But then it is revealed that this is actually, they're inside the Celestial's head, uh, and it was showing them a, a vision of the world that if, the, if what they wanted to do was successful in their mission, um, 
they can't basically <laughs> and so they have to like stop and they can't they know they can't destroy it and they just have to let it do its thing uh so the eternals go and decide instead of trying to fight the celestial why don't we try to give it just good humanity so they go and they wake up one of the imprisoned imprisoned eternals eros aka star fox who has the power to influence emotions specifically that of love, um, so he can basically make all of humans really lovey-dovey, and hopefully the etern- the uh, Celestial will be like, you know what, you guys passed my test. That's basically what's going on. <laughs> Grim number four is still fantastic. The Scythe of Death takes Jessica and her buddies to Las Vegas, where she is able to save a wasted bride from being wasted, uh, but she actually just made her undead. I'm honestly not quite sure. It was a bit unclear. But then Death hijacks the bride's body for a moment to talk to Jessica, telling her where they can find him in the Hotel Inferno. They go, and when they do, um, they find a complete wreck of a room, and Death is there um, just being an absolute mess of a person, I guess. Meanwhile, Adira, back at home base, she sends an army of Reapers out to find and destroy... Jessica uh, telling them lies about her betraying the afterlife to spur them on. Sins of the Black Flamingo number three. Uh, Abel the Clay Man was able to save Harlow's life. Um, He is clearly in love, but Harlow is absolutely clueless. Uh, The angel that he discovered is an idea made flesh bound by that collar. As I understand it, he isn't actually quite real, so if they remove the collar, he ceases to be. So that's a bit complicated. Public domain number three, the assistant who leaked the creatorship documents gets fired, of course, um, and they have their big lawyer meeting, which goes not the way anybody expected. Uh, the family walks away with nothing but 60k and the rights to make more domain comics, which... Is not what anybody thought that he was going in there to get, but I guess now he just gave himself more work under the expectation that people still want to read domain comics. Damage Control number one was actually quite disappointing. The art was completely horrendous. It was actually quite disgusting art. It was genuinely unattractive. Uh, The writing was very clearly done by a writer who was used to writing sitcoms, and that is not a compliment. Uh, I had, honest to God, better expectations than this, and I am very disappointed. <laughs> it was pretty terrible. Um, but the second, the second story, uh, it had two stories in it. It was way better. Art was still extremely meh, but it was way better, much more along the lines of what I would have expected. And what do you know? It was written by the wife of Dwayne McDuffie who started the Damage Control comics. So, hey, (laughs) that would explain why she is so much better than a sitcom writer. Minor Threats number one is another indie one. This is by Patton Oswalt, of all people. Uh, This is from Dark Horse Comics, and it is really, really good with actually fantastic art. Basically, a former child villain sidekick works at a villain bar. Her mom was the main villain of their pairing, but she was the one with superpowers to basically bring toys to life. She did a stint in jail after she had a kid and only got out in the last month or so when the comic picks up. 
Uh, but there is this villain called the Stick Man who kind of loses it, and he kills the teenage sidekick of their Batman, basically. And all of the heroes end up kind of going nuts, destroying, taking out, stealing, kidnapping, beating up all the villains in an attempt to figure out where Stick Man is. Um, so she ends up deciding that she's going to start her own team of shitty D-list villains, and they are going to find Stickman and kill him before the heroes completely destroy their community. So I, I think that's quite, it's a really good premise, and it was written very well as well with great art. So 10 out of 10. Great stuff. Olympus Rebirth, on the other hand, the art was the actual literal best. Um, Caitlin Yarsky, I will read anything that she does art with just because she is that great. Uh, however, it was very clear that the lettering was incredibly rushed um, and lacked a lot of necessary attention to detail. Um, so that was a bit awkward. And aside from that, the writing itself stumbled a lot as well, um, especially with transitions. And that's honestly why I can't get into the current Wonder Woman series. I honestly think the writing team just doesn't really jive with Wonder Woman. I just don't think they fit. Um, but anyway, the story of this issue, it seems to pretty much fill in the gaps that there apparently are in Trial of the Amazons with Hippolyta, who is a goddess now, going to Tartarus to free the god Chaos in an attempt to save the gods of Olympus from destruction. I didn't quite follow that logic myself, but okay, we'll go with it. Um, Hecate had given Hippolyta some kind of warning along with a knife, saying that as Olympus faces its end, pretty much somebody is going to come and try to take over, um, and it's up to the two of us to try and stop them. Great, okay. Um, uh, gets to be kind of deadly when uh, Hera comes to talk with um, Hippolyta about her beef. She has major beef with Diana and Hippolyta, um, and it kind of kicks off properly once Chaos is free, with Hippolyta um, being, I guess, uh, being confronted, that's the word I'm looking for, being confronted by Hera, uh, who tells her that she has sent agents to go and kill Diana. Uh, so then she stabs Hera, is completely horrified that she's killed Hera, and runs off. And then it turns out, of course, that this was all a trick. Hecate tricked her. Um, none of that actually happened. She was just testing to see how far Hippolyta would go, because apparently there's going to be some stuff happening soon that they need to have each other's backs. And that's all I got for that. I, I'm really not sure. I guess it's going to pick up in the Wonder Woman issues. Um which is fine, I guess. I'm not going to be reading them, though, because, again, I am not a fan of this writing team. Next up, we've got this week's comic book polls. These are comics that are going to be coming out the week of the 31st, starting off with Wonder Girl 2022 Annual. It's obviously from DC Comics, written by Joelle Jones and Douglas Marquet, with art by Joelle Jones, Adriana Mello, Ami Lennox, Benjamin Dewey, Sweeney Boo, and Jordi Belair, with covers by Joel Jones, Chris Wildgoose, and Scott Forbes. After an unforgettable visit to Themyscira, Sea Trial of the Amazons, Yara Floor has been crowned Wonder Girl and her Escocita tribe accepted into the Amazon sisterhood. So what now? The jungles of Brazil beckon our heroes home, just in time for some new adventures. You won't want to miss the oversized issue packed with never-before-seen stories about the mysterious new tribe and their most famous member. 
Harley Quinn 2022 Annual is by Stephanie Phillips and Georges Duarte with Simon Buonfantino. Covers by John Boy Myers, Nathan Therzi, Jim Lee, homage cover, and Carmine Giandomenico. I'm sorry. It says, Task Force XX Chapter 5. Do you know what old Grandma Quinzel used to say? Live long and fight alien monsters to save Earth. She was full of wisdom like that and other stuff. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Point being, tune in for the final installment of Harley Quinn's Task Force XX Space Extravaganza, plus the start of a new status quo for Harley Quinn. That was the part of the solicit that mattered. Thunderbolts number one from Marvel Comics is going to be by Jim Zub, Sean Izaxi, and colors by Javier Tartaglia. Tartaglia. I probably said that very wrong. Covers by, uh, it was colors by him. Covers by David Nakayama, Paolo Sequeira, Stefano Caselli, Sean Izaxi, and Todd Nock. Like lightning. Oh, it says New York's finest like lightning. New York City's finest are here to save the day. Hawkeye, Spectrum, America, Chavez, Power Man, Persuasion, and Guts and Glory. You know them, you love them, they're the Thunderbolts. In the aftermath of Devil's Reign, the Big Apple has big problems, and it's up to a new group of Thunderbolts to turn things around. But when Clint Barton gets tasked with heading up this team and proving they can go toe-to-toe with anyone in the Marvel Universe can throw at them, the first opponent he's going to have to face is himself. Dramatic. Uh, I am here for the women of this team, um, that being Spectrum and America Chavez. I genuinely don't know who Persuasion or Guts and Glory are. We'll find out later if I care. Vampirella Year One, Number Two by Christopher Priest and Aragon Gundes has covers by Colette Turner, Brooks Kim, Carla Cohen, Selena... Lucio Perillo, Derek Chu, Guillaume March, Kevin Nolan, Joseph Michael Linzer, Giovanni Timpano, Ergen Gundas, Josh Burns, and a cosplay cover. And that is, of course, from Dynamite Comics. The variants, number three of five, is by Gail Simone and Phil Noto, with a beautiful variant by Betsy Cola. Backed into an impossible corner, Jessica is forced to make a sacrifice play that could cost her a member of her own family, guest starring Jessica Jones. This has been a really fun one. Alice Ever After number five of five comes from Dan Pinozio and Giorgio Spalletta out of Boom Studios with a variant cover by Carrie Nord. And yes, it is the final issue. X-Men number 14. I'm really just here for Ileana. (laughs) It is by uh, Gary Duggan and Carlos Villa with covers by Martin Cocolo, Russell Dodderman magic cover and Miguel Mikado X-23 cover. Oh, and John Romita Jr. Finally, Amazing Fantasy 1000. It says the comic that brought you Spider-Man hits a thousand. We're going big to celebrate this, our thousandth issue of Amazing Fantasy. How many times am I going to say that? An all-star roster of creators are coming together to celebrate Peter Parker and Spider-Man's birthdays. Good for them. Writers include... Jonathan Hickman, Dan Slott, Kurt Busick, Neil Gaiman, Hoche Anderson, Rainbow Roll, and Armando Iannucci. Artists include Anthony Falcone, Ryan Stegman, Terry Dodson, Giuseppe Camancoli, Marco Cicchetto, Jim Chung, Oliver Coppell, Goran Parlov, and Michael Cho. With covers by John Romita Jr., J. Scott Campbell, Torin Clark, Joe Quesada, Steve McNiven, and Peach Momoko. If I am not mistaken, there are only two female names in that whole list, and that is upsetting. Do better, Marvel. Do better. 
Now we're going to go straight into She-Hulk episode 2 titled Superhuman Law. We're doing less of a play-by-play walkthrough of the episode this week and more of a points of interest. So obviously we start off in a celebration of the case being kind of sort of one at a bar where Jen discovers unfortunately she no longer has a job uh, due to her superhero status and now she's going to have to face her new superhero status. We get the the ever-current question of do the Avengers have healthcare and do they get paid? Of course we kind of know that the answer to that is especially post-Tony, a definitive no. (laughs) Uh, And also makes me think that when we get other hero teams like the Thunderbolts or, or, you know, anything adjacent like that, they probably will get paid. And it's probably going to be a big joke about how, like, oh, why did the Avengers ever do this? Could just be my theory, though. Uh, Meanwhile, Bruce goes off to Sakaar. Um, The ship, I guess, must have returned to him after the accident it caused, which makes me wonder why didn't it go to help him? It just waited. It was like, oops, caused an accident. I'm just going to wait for a better time and come back later. The only thing I can think, it must be unmanned. There's obviously nobody in the ship with him when we see him in it then, going back to Sakaar. So... Yeah, I, I guess it was just unmanned. That's all I can think of. Um, there's also a really funny line from Mark Ruffalo's Hulk where he says, in reference to his former beef with Abomination, he says, I'm a completely different person now, literally, which is, of course, a joke referencing the fact that uh, Mark Ruffalo was not who was playing uh, the Incredible Hulk in that movie they were talking about. So he really is a completely different person. Um, Tatiana Maslany explained that Mark Ruffalo actually came up with that line himself. She said, that was a Mark ad-lib. It's truly the world of this show. It's as meta as you can possibly get, and what's more meta than discussing the fact that the Hulk in The Incredible Hulk was played by a totally different actor. There are so many layers to it. Yes, that's true. It was a very nice line. Good ad-lib, Mark. Good ad-lib. On Jen's computer, while she is searching for jobs, which is pretty funny in itself, um, we get a couple of things here. We see on the website she's on, you get titles for North mytho- Norse mythology, uh, which obviously has to do with Thor and Asgard. There's a title that says Find Ant-Man, which is either a game or some kind of like tracking where he's been. I don't know. Uh, and one that says Avengers as well. It's probably kind of similar. There is an ad for the new Iron Man 3s, which are, I'm sure, a form of fancy overpriced shoe. Um, And then there is a possible Wolverine teaser here, uh, a headline that says man fights with metal claws in bar brawl. Could literally amount to nothing. Um, Could be referenced later, so who really knows? We'll have to wait and see. Finally... There is another headline that says, Why is there a giant statue of a man sticking out of the ocean? First of all, it's not really a man, is it? Uh, Second of all, that is referencing Eternals when uh, Cersei turns the, what is he, the Dreaming Eternal as he comes up through the planet's surface, destroying it in the process. She turns him to stone, effectively killing him um, and keeping him from destroying the planet. But he's still there, popping out of the whatever part of the ocean it was that they were in, um, just kind of there, yeah, just sticking out of the ocean. And it is a very good question, uh, why? why? <laughs> um, there's a lot of questions surrounding that, in fact, but 
I hope we get them delved into later. Uh, the last thing we see in that whole scene, though, is that Jen's phone background is Captain America's butt. So she just seems to have a real big thing for him. At her family dinner, we meet Elaine and Morris, who are her parents. Uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, this is very interesting to me because, um, first off, Elaine is long dead in the comic when we first meet Jen. Um, she was killed by... Um, as I am putting it, drunk driver, uh, who was a gangster of Nick Trask. <laughs> um, it was, Nick Trask was a gangster himself. Um, and her father, uh, Walter Morris, Walter Morris, Morris Walter, I got it backwards, was actually the sheriff of the LADP department. Um, or just, I guess, LAPD, you know, LAPD department, department. Um, he was a sheriff, and it doesn't really seem that he is the sheriff of the show. I think that would be pretty obvious if he was. Um, but the fact that both of her parents are alive is interesting to me, because why? What the, why Why make that change? You could have easily just said, oh yeah, her mom died years ago and she just has her dad. Was that because they're trying to fight the whole Disney dead mom thing that they always, people always joke about. Uh, I don't know. I, my personal theory is kind of the obvious one that one or the other of her parents are going to end up killed in the, uh, or mortally wounded or something in the events of her being She-Hulk. Her father also brought up a really good question about Hawkeye, who she has not met yet, but who she has a really rough, like, frenemy type relationship with uh, as Avengers teammates in the comics, but he asks, where do Hawkeye's arrows go? Does he pick them up when the battle is over? It is a very good question, and I think it's something that has been uh, made fun of quite a bit uh, in terms of the Avengers comics and movies when it comes to Hawkeye, and it was even, I want to say, very, very lightly touched on uh, when you see Hawkeye run out of arrows in one of the Avengers movies. And I think that was kind of a joke about that. So it kind of works. Uh, we also meet Ched, who is Bruce and Jennifer's other cousin, I guess. It's weird that there's only three of them because in my family, there's 26 of us. I am not making that up. My mom is one of 11. Um, but yeah, Ched is the cousin who they were joking about being the other genius in the family. Um, and obviously when you meet him, he's clearly not a genius. He is just the manager of the local Best Buy. Uh, he's played by Nicholas Carrillo, or possibly Cerillo. Um, and lots of people have him are wondering, what is Ched short for? Chedwick? Oh my god, is his name Cheddar? That's what it is. It's His name is Cheddar. It's definitely Cheddar. Okay, moving on. Uh, GLK and H, the lawyer offices from the comics that Jen works for for most of her career. Um, she does end up getting hired um, by... Uh, she ends up getting hired to be a part of their uh, superhero or superhuman law division um, by Holden Holloway himself, uh, but he specifically wants her to be the face of this division as She-Hulk, uh, which is interesting because in the comics, he does want her as the head of their superhuman law division, but specifically as Jen. So this is an interesting little flip that they did, and that makes me wonder there must be a reason behind that. Um, also, we see that their logo is pretty much... Um, a variation on the first She-Hulk titles that we saw when they were uh, putting out images for the show. It was kind of that weird 
law and order kind of cut in the word. That is what the GLK and H logo looks like as well. Of course, Nikki is her paralegal. She's brought her to this new office with her. We have not had it confirmed yet that Nikki hired Titania to bust into that courtroom in the last episode, so Jen would end up having to be publicly become She-Hulk. Uh, but what we can assume, I mean, I just feel like it becomes more and more obvious that that's what happened, because we also find out in this episode that Titania is a social media influencer or something like that. Um, so why would she be just busting into a courtroom? Because somebody told her it's a big PR move, and that's just waiting for that to be confirmed now. Uh, we also meet another of the superhuman law office workers, who is Pug. Uh, frankly, a completely random choice from the Dan Slot She-Hulk, in my opinion. He was basically... Um, he had a big crush on Jen for forever, never noticed. He basically got friend-zoned, so to say. Um, but his whole, like, shtick, I guess, is that he was saved by Spider-Man and then dedicated his life to, decided to dedicate his life to helping superheroes because of that, in return for that, I guess. So that's, that's his whole shtick. Uh, he big crush on Jen, which I feel like they picked the perfect actor to have a big stupid crush that nobody notices <laughs> or that the girl doesn't notice, you know, it's, it's kind of works out for that, I think. Um, but also reading up on the character of Pug, um, it taught me that Jen the comics had a pair of fish named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which I feel like mentioning now and find hilarious because actor Tim Roth, who is playing Abomination, he uh, played Rosencrantz in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead alongside Gary Oldman. So really good movie and that would be a really fun reference for them to slip in here somehow. Um, and apparently the pug from the comics does not really have a happy ending. He manages to get over his feelings for Jen by accidentally tying himself to the witch Morgan Le Fay, who is herself quite nefarious, so sorry, pug. You don't have too much of a good future ahead of you. <laughs> you know, they can always change things, right? <laughs> But my guess is that they're going to stick with that origin for him, that he was saved by some superhero or another, and that is why he has dedicated his life to helping superheroes by way of law. Finally, we see Jen going to visit Emil Blonsky in the DODC prison. Um, I guess this was part of the whole deal before she agrees to to take on his case. She's going to meet him and talk to him, blah, blah, blah. Um, there is a Silence of the Lambs reference. When she goes in, she makes a joke about fava beans and a nice Chianti. That is, uh, a line that Hannibal Lecter says to Clarice, talking about eating her. <laughs> nice stuff. Um, but what's really interesting about the scene to me is when she finally gets in there and talks to Emil Blonsky, um, he has a completely different perspective to the whole abomination events that I think anybody would have expected. Um, basically, he was saying that he thought he was going to be the next Captain America. That's how they sold him on taking the altered super soldier serum and becoming abomination is what it ended up being. It wasn't supposed to be that. Um, but basically, uh, she she wasn't going to take the case. Jen wasn't going to take his case. And she goes in. She's like, I'm just going to talk to him, tell him no thank you, whatever it is that she's going to say. But then as he's talking and telling her his perspective on events, 
it becomes very clear that he has a solid case here against the U.S. government um, because they literally told him he was going to be a super soldier and save America and he was doing his soldier's duty and then they turned him into abomination. And so she catches on to this basically and you can see it in her face when she realizes I could win this case for him pretty easily. Um, And that's pretty much, I think, what gets her to decide she will go ahead and take that that and the fact that Bruce confirms they settled their dirt many years ago which is a pretty funny thing anyway um we also see uh while she's in that scene with Blonsky he mentions that he has seven soulmates that he met through the prison pen pal program which could just be absolutely hilarious drivel nothing to it or it could be a reference to the thunderbolts some people seem to think that it is because then he followed it up with how he wants to start a new life and, quote, live in peace on a large piece of property, unquote, purchased by his seven prison soulmates. Um, or rather, it's purchased for him by them, uh, is the way that he phrased it. So some people think that's a Thunderbolts reference. I guess it could be. I think it's more of just, like, showing that he's not quite the golden guy he's saying he is, because he's kind of screwing over these seven people in the prison pen pal program, making them think that he's... Um, you know, into them so that he can get a house out of it, right? That's obviously what's happening. I don't don't think it's a Thunderbolts thing. Uh, But anyway, in any case, Jen ends up taking the job, and immediately after she says yes, pretty much immediately after, uh, it becomes uh, public knowledge. Uh, The media finds footage of Blonsky as Abomination fighting in uh, the, the chain, whatever they call it, the fighting rings in China. He's fighting Wong in this video. Uh, meaning that he has been regularly breaking out with Wong's help. Um, and now that is public knowledge that this high security prison has been accidentally allowing their number one inmate to regularly escape to nobody's knowledge. And now the whole, everybody in the world knows that. And guess who is going to be asked all of the questions his new attorney. So obviously that's why Wong's going to get brought into the series because she's going to have to tell him, dude, stop breaking Blonsky out of prison. Um, And I'm also very excited to see the interactions between Wong and Blonsky because we obviously saw them very briefly uh, post-fight, or I should say post-bout because they weren't actually angry with each other in any way. They're actually kind of on the same team um, if I recall, uh, in, in Shang-Chi, we get it revealed that, uh, Wong is breaking him in and out of prison so that he can look better in fights, something like that. Uh, but in any case, it's pretty funny and I'm excited to see the two of them interact more and to see like what Emil has to say about all of this in his defense or, you know, whatever the case may be. But the next episode is obviously going to be this Thursday, the 1st of September on Disney+, Plus. so keep an eye out for that, and we'll be covering it on episode 78. The last thing we're covering here, uh, pretty briefly, as the last two episodes have been, last few episodes have been, is Harley Quinn episode 7, titled Another Sharkly Adventure. 
In this episode, we see that Ivy is still looking through the green for Frank, which she does start to look mildly reminiscent of Queen Ivy from the comics while doing so, so I'm kind of curious if she's, like, opening up new abilities. I'd be into that. Uh, they do know that Bruce Wayne is the one who has Frank, but they obviously don't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman, so they use Selina, who just broke up with him, to try and trick Bruce into getting Frank back for them. It's a whole thing. Uh, Selina doesn't she's she's kind of the quintessential Selena for me at this point. Um, I think any other version of Selena Kyle is just going to be a disappointment compared to this one. She is fantastic. Um, but anyway, so they're trying to get Frank back still, basically, is what that entire side of that plot is. Meanwhile, King Shark, um, which is just his name, not his title, um, the Shark Kingdom, they are going through some stuff. So their actual king is dead, and his eldest son, King Shark, doesn't want to rule, so King Shark goes undersea for a shark ceremony, how many times am I going to say shark in this episode, to pass rulership over to his younger brother, whose name I don't know. But as king, his younger brother is going to sell the kingdom to Black Manta, or was it Ocean Master? Um, but anyway, they, they have a big fight to the death with our guy, King Shark, coming out on top, killing his own brother. So, good times, as always. <laughs> um, I don't honestly recall if he's gonna have to be king now, uh, but I'm excited for the next episode. It, too, will be premiering on HBO Max this Thursday, September 1st. And that wraps up this week's episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Thank you very much for tuning in to whatever portion of the podcast you were able to tune into. Um, I will have a number of links in the description and whatnot below for accessing things that I have referenced throughout this podcast episode, as well as links to the Discord, uh, various sites and things, you know, stuff that's relevant. Um, there go the cats. <laughs> so we will be back next Monday for episode 78, in which we will be covering uh, the first uh, the first news of September, whatever that will be at that point, comic book picks from this, the week of the 31st, as well as polls for the subsequent week of the 8th. Wow, really? 7th. Okay, 7th. It's still... Um, and then we're going to be talking episode 3 of She-Hulk and episode 8 of Harley Quinn. So stay tuned for all of that. Make sure you check out the podcast notes on the website if you wanted to clarify anything. And definitely listen to my She-Hulk companion podcast episode, which is over two and a half hours long of me talking about Jennifer Walters, She-Hulk in the comics, all of her history, pretty much absolutely everything you could possibly want to know about her. I have uh, put together as like this insightful I was going to say little podcast. It's a long podcast. Uh, but I'm very pleased with how it turned out. So if you would like to either... Um you can listen to that, you can follow along with the written portions of it uh, however you'd like, but be sure to check it out because it is going to tell you all about She-Hulk. So we'll see you guys next week for episode 78. Stay cool out there, we've got another really, really big heat wave coming through this week, so make sure you stay hydrated, you hippies, um, and enjoy your last little bits of summer refusing to go away here. <laughs>